let me repeat the rock and roll podcast check out this record my name is frank and with me is my good buddy mark hey frank hello listener and you can find us on spotify and apple podcast and now amazon music podcast that's right we release episodes every friday for your personal listening torture i mean pleasure <laughs> and for any new listeners out there, this right here this is the podcast where Mark and I recommend albums to each other and we review them. Plus, we have a wide variety of musical discussions like our Spotlight series where we dig into a band's catalog and we see what comes out on the other side. That's right. We're in our Verse series where we'll pit two albums against each other and make them duke it out for total stereo domination. Be sure to check us out on the old Instagram and our Facebook group. We'd like to drop additional content that will hopefully leave you wanting more of our musical goodness and, of course, Mark's random nonsense. If you got a record you want us to check out, drop the comment wherever you find us. While you're at it, subscribe, like, review while you're at it. And I'm going to say this, Mark, how are you, my man? Good, buddy. I don't know what that was. Um, Me neither. Super pumped for this is episode fifty, dude. People are people have listened to fifty. Well, they've listened to forty nine and are currently listening to their fiftieth episode. Fiftieth episode of this podcast. I can't believe we've been canceled yet. <laughs> right? People can just cancel us. You can't just come here and cancel us. Wrong cable <laughs> access. Uh, anyways, uh, uh, you know we've got a big, big old show for you today. We're we're covering the life and death of Kurt Cobain. I'd like to take a second before we get uh, too deep into this to say we're going to miss some stuff, okay? There are hours and hours of documentaries and stacks on stacks of books on uh, this subject and and well more. Frank and I are simply taking everything we've learned uh, after viewing and reading as much of it as possible and trying to wedge it into an entertaining podcast that hopefully, hopefully sheds a little light on some things you know, some things you don't know, and it helps you put the pieces to this puzzle together because this is one really fucked up jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> Episode 50, man. We made it, my good old buddy. And, yeah. you know, it's been super fun, and I cannot wait for the next 50 with you, my man. Yeah. Let's raise a drink. Uh, so here we are, one episode removed from Nirvana Unplugged, and we'll slide uh, into the life and the mysterious death of Kurt Donald Cobain. So, Mark, let's take a deep breath here. Let's get this thing going. We're going to get right into it. Start off with uh, his early life and family for us. Yeah, my pleasure. Born February 20th, 1967 in Aberdeen, Washington, Kurt was the first child of waitress Wendy Elizabeth and Mc and mechanic Donald Leland Cobain, followed by their only other child together, sister Kimberly, in April of 1970. Kurt was described as being a happy and excitable child who also exhibited sensitivity and care. His talents as an artist were, was evident at an early age as he would draw his favorite characters from films and cartoons, such as a personal favorite in The Creature from the Black Lagoon, and another personal favorite, Donald Duck. Cobain began developing an interest in music at a young age. According to his Aunt Mary, who was apparently a big uh, Aberdeen bar scene performer, Frank, 
Um, nice. He began to sing at age two, and at age four started playing the piano and singing, writing a song about a trip to a local park. Uh, he listened. I believe that song ends up on In Utero as Rape Me. That's not true. I made that up. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Uh, he listened to artists like uh, the Ramones, uh, ELO, uh, Electric Light Orchestra, for those of you who aren't cool enough. And from a young age, he sing songs like Arlo, Arlo Guthrie's motorcycle song, The Beatles' Hey Jude, Terry Jack's Seasons in the Sun, and the theme song of one of Frank's favorite TV shows, The Monkees. Oh, totally. Love it. Totally. At nine years old, his parents would divorce. Uh, he later said that the divorce had a profound effect on his life. His mother noted that his personality changed dramatically. Kurt became defiant and withdrawn, according to his mother. In a 1993 interview, Kurt elaborated by saying, I remember feeling ashamed. For some reason, I was ashamed of my parents. I couldn't face some of my friends at school anymore because I desperately wanted to have the classic, you know, typical family, mother, father, I wanted that security. So I resented my parents for quite a few years because of that, end quote. Uh, both of his parents found new partners after divorcing. Although his father had promised not to remarry, after meeting Jenny Westaby, he did, uh, much to Kurt's dismay. Kurt, his father, Jenny Westaby, and her two children, Mindy and James, moved into a new household together. Cobain liked Westby at first, as she gave him the maternal attention he desired. However, in January of 1979, Jenny gave birth to a boy, Chad Cobain. I kind of feel bad for him, like, yeah, Chad Cobain. Like, oh, Chad. You know what I mean? Like, hey, who put this hole in the wall? Chad. I know. uh, (laughs) Who needs to plunge the toilet? It's, you know, Chad Chad, again. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, the new family, which Kurt insisted was not his real one, um, was in stark contrast to the attention he was, he, he was used to receiving as the only son. Um, and he soon began to express resentment towards his stepmother. Meanwhile, his mother began dating a man who was abusive. Uh, he witnessed the domestic violence inflicted upon her, uh, said by her said boyfriend, uh, who once inflicted, resu- um, oh my God, I have no idea what I wrote there. Um, Kurt once witnessed some domestic violence inflicted from the boyfriend to her mother, which left her hospitalized with a broken arm. My apologies Ouch. for the whole folks. It's going to be a long night. Stay tuned. Yep. When he steadfastly refused to press charges, remaining completely committed to the relationship. Uh, I don't know if they're still together or not, Frank, to be honest with you, though. Um, as one might expect now, um, but would have been misunderstood then. Kurt's behavior towards adults during this period of his youth changed dramatically. He even began bullying another boy at school. That's not right, Frank. Such misconduct eventually caused his father and stepmother to take him to a therapist who concluded that he would benefit from a single family environment. Both sides of the family attempted to bring his parents back together, but to no avail. On January 28, 1979, Cobain's mother granted full custody to his father, and then he becomes a teenager. Frank? Yeah, so we're going to get into the teen years, folks, and uh, it's a lot to to take in, so that's why uh, we're, we're going to do our, our uh, best here. So here we go. 
Teen years, Cobain's teenage rebellion quickly became overwhelming for his father, who placed his son in the care of family and friends. While living uh, with a born-again Christian family of his friend Jesse Reed, he became a devout Christian and regularly attended church services. He later renounced Christianity, engaging in what he described as anti-God rants, and the song Lithium uh, is about his experience while living with the Reed family. Uh, religion remained actually an important part of his personal life and beliefs. Uh, and if I could just add to the point that it's really a matter of clinging on to something, obviously we could get that he's cl trying to cling on to something to be a part of it, no matter what that is, when there's such chaos and disarray. Um, he was also uninterested in sports and Cobain was enrolled in a junior high school wrestling team at the assistance insistence, excuse me, of his father. Uh, he was actually a skilled wrestler, but despised the experience because of the ridicule he and Dirt from his teammates and coach, he allowed himself to get pinned in an attempt to sadden his father. Uh, later, his father enlisted him in the Little League baseball team where uh, Cobain would intentionally strike out and avoid playing. Now, Cobain actually befriended a gay student at school that suffered from bullying from peers uh, who concluded um, that when who concluded that he was gay. That's when the, obviously the, the bullying occurred at the time. In an interview, he said that he liked being associated with a gay identity because he did not like people. And when he thought he was gay, they left him alone. He stated, I started being really proud of the fact that I was gay, even though I wasn't. His friend tried to kiss him and Cobain backed away, explaining to his friend that he was not gay, but remained friends with him. Uh, Cobain would also spray paint God is gay on trucks in Aberdeen areas and even got arrested for spray painting a phrase, ain't got no how whatchamacallit on other vehicles. Mm, 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 mm. So in late 1986, Cobain moved to an apartment, paying his rent by working at a Polynesian resort, not in Orlando, folks, not the Polynesian there. Uh, this is a Polynesian themed resort on the Pacific coast at Ocean Shores, Washington, which was about 20 miles north of Aberdeen. Uh, during this period, he traveled frequently to Olympia, Washington to go to rock concerts. And during his visits to Olympia, uh, Cobain formed a friendship with Tracy Manderer, <clears throat> excuse me, who was the subject of the song about a girl. So I think that's a good segue now, Mark, uh, into Kurt's musical interests. Yeah. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, the Beatles were an early and lasting influence on Cobain. Uh, quote, my aunt would give me Beatles records, end quote. Cobain told John Savage in 1993, quote, so for the most part, I listened to the Beatles as a child. And if I was lucky, I'd be able to buy a single, end quote. Yeah. Turns out, Kurt and I shared a particular fondness for John Lennon, whom he would call his idol in his Posthumously, post, post, you know, when people die and then they release stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of that word. Uh, I'm trying to read it and it's just, my brain's just not working. Uh, release journals. Uh, he said that he wrote the song about a girl from Nirvana's 1989 debut, Bleach, after spending three hours listening to meet the Beatles. Pretty cool. Uh, Cobain was also a fan of 70s hard rock and heavy metal bands, including Led Zeppelin, ACDC, Black Sabbath, Aerosmith, Queen, and Kiss. Nirvana occasionally played covers from these bands, including Led Zeppelin's Heartbreaker, Moby Dick, an immigrant song, Black Sabbath's Hand of Doom, and Kiss's Do You Love Me, uh, and wrote <laughs> the insecticide song Aero Zeppelin as a tribute to Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith. Check out this quote I found. Quote, 
I used to take a nap in the van and listen to Queen over and over again and drain the battery on the van. We'd be stuck with a dead battery because I listened to Queen too much. Uh, what do you think his favorite Queen record was, Frank? Oh, man. I, I News of the World, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe. I mean, I wonder what his favorite Queen song was, too, actually, you know? Um, yeah, great. I mean, like, things we could be asking him, but he's good. Anyway. <laughs> oh, uh, there you go. Now let's talk about how punk rock proved to be a profound influence on the teenage attitude and antics of old KDC. That's uh, Kirk Donald Cobain for, uh, for those of you who are playing along. Um, did you know his first punk rock album was Sandinista by The Clash, Frank? I, I didn't know that at all. But he became a bigger fan of the fellow 1970s British punk band The Sex Pistols, describing them as, and I completely disagree with this, one million times more important than the clash in mm. the clearly proving that even a musical genius can be wrong that's so wrong in a thousand different levels go ahead it, though. it really is but you know what we're not heroin addicts so whatever anyway he would soon be introduced to 80s hardcore bands such as black flag bad brains millions of dead cops mdc for those who were hip and flipper uh by friend buzz osborne lead singer and guitarist of the Meldons, a fellow Aberdeen native band. I thought you were uh, going to say Buzz Aldrin, just for the record. Oh, wouldn't that be cool? Um, <laughs> yeah, Kurt Cobain knew Buzz Aldrin. Um, they did heroin together on the moon. Um, Osborne taught Cobain about punk by loading him with records and old copies of uh, Detroit-based magazine Cream. Uh, the Meldons themselves were an important early influence on Cobain with their heavy, grungy uh, sound mimicked by Nirvana uh, on many songs from Bleach. And I believe, before I hand it back over to you, Frank, uh, there are some indications of him living in the practice space for periods of time of the Melvins uh, before crashing on somebody else's couch or with a girlfriend or something. Right, right. A Buzz Osborne, not Buzz Aldrin. But yes, yes. <laughs> All right. So Cobain was also a fan of proto-punk acts like the Stooges, whose 73 album Raw Power he listed as one of his favorite of all time in his journals, and Mark's favorite, the Velvet Underground, Ooh. whose 1968 song Here She Comes Now, the band covered live and in studio. So the 1980s American alternative rock band Pixies were really instrumental in helping adult Kurt Cobain develop his songwriting style. In a 1992 interview with Melody Maker, Cobain said that hearing the 88 debut album by Pixies, Surfa Rosa, which I love, by the way, convinced him to abandon his more Black Flag-influenced songwriting in the favor of Iggy Pop, Aerosmith-type songwriting that appeared on Nevermind. In a 1993 interview with Rolling Stone, he stated, like, he stated that Smells Like Teen Spirit was his attempt at trying to rip off the Pixies. Uh, I have to admit it, when I heard the Pixies for the first time, I connected with it that the band was so heavy uh, that I should have been in that band, he says, or at least a Pixies cover band. Uh, we used their sense of dynamics being soft and quiet and then loud and hard frank you're the the pixies fan between us um do you think do you hear the pixies in in smells like teen spirit do you hear any of that influence i'm gonna tell you that i i think the pixies were a more complex band and anything Cobain wrote and Cobain wrote some really, really good stuff. I think what he took from the Pixies, in my opinion, is where you have the quiet verses and then mm -hmm. the loud choruses. I think that whole concept, which, which 
Right, which Pixies did. Yeah. I, I think that whole bit. But if you like listen to like the Pixies lyrics, um, again, not knocking Cobain's lyrics at all, but I think Pixies were on a totally other atmosphere. So, right on. Uh, his appreciation of early alternative rock bands also extended to Sonic Youth and R.E.M., both of which uh, the members of Nirvana befriended and looked up to uh, for advice. It was under recommendation from Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon that Nirvana signed to DGC in 1990, and both bands did a two-week tour of Europe in the summer of 1991, as documented in the 1992 documentary, 1991, The Year punk broke in 1993 cobain said of rem if i could write just a couple of songs as good as what they've written i don't know how how bands does what they do god they're the greatest they've dealt with their success like saints and they keep delivering great music end quote dude really loved rem really did yeah after attaining mainstream success Cocaine, excuse me, cocaine. <laughs> um, <laughs> Wait a minute, pal. <laughs> became a devoted champion of lesser known indie bands, uh, covering songs from the Vaseline's Meat Puppets, Wipers, and Fang on stage and in the studio. In 1993, excuse me, in a 1993 interview uh, revealed he had been introduced to Lead Belly from reading the American author William S. Burroughs. Kurt went on to say, I remember Burroughs saying in an interview, these new rock and roll kids should just throw away their guitars and listen to something with real soul, like Lead Belly. Cobain uh, continued, I'd never heard about Lead Belly before, so I bought a couple of records, and now he turns out to be one of my absolute favorite all-time music. That sense is a little jumbled, and I promise I read the way it was written. I absolutely love it. Sorry about that. (laughs) You didn't write that. I wrote that. Um, Uh I absolutely love it more than any rock and roll I've ever heard. Uh, end quote. So it's interesting. I, I directly quoted him there. That's the way that sentence came out. So you'll excuse me for, um, <laughs> for reading it that way. It's a little tricky to, to go through these words. Um, what are, uh, what are some of your thoughts on his influences? I know we kind of interjected as things made us laugh, like suggesting that the clash aren't as important as the sex pistols. And I can hear that, that argument only from, well, more people listen to the Sex Pistols. More people listen to punk because of the Sex Pistols. Um, but I think, honestly, when it comes to to music and what they did musically, the Clash outside, outshine the Sex Pistols nine days a week. Well, I'm totally with you on that one and, yeah. and so many different ways uh, in reference to the Clash. First of all, that more of a body of work to compare to than the pistols who had, you know, of course one album um, and the clashes punkier stuff is better than the pistols, anything they did. And the clashes uh, more world music type stuff is a million times better than anything. The sex pistols did. But anyway, um, what's interesting is now we kind of get into that, that genre game again. And what's interesting is that 1991, the year punk broke documentary. I mean, if you see the lineup of, what this documentary is following sonic youth babes in toyland dinosaur jr gumball mud honey nirvana and then at the end is a band called ramones right who is like kind of really the true punk band in this whole documentary here but it's interesting we get to that um but anyway back to Kirbane's influences i i think it's a wide um variety it's interesting because really still at his time and the time he was born there 
isn't the big catalog that someone today would have of rock and roll, right, to be influenced of. And someone today could be influenced of things that we never even heard of, but still be rock music in some way, shape or form. Um, you know, so I, I think there were limitations as far as the influences goes, as far as the big bands and even the punk bands at the time. Um, and it definitely created the sound he was going for. But I really think Pixies were the one that gave him that structure of, again, light, courses or light verses heavy courses um and he took it and made it his own that's why i think you yeah you know it's interesting obviously you know we can debate all day whether or not nirvana was a punk band um i think they were especially the first two records um and i think that they escalated to what would later be called grunge and what i think corporate mainstream uh record labels would uh, slap a label on to try to define the sound of an area being the Pacific Northwest. Um, but that's a whole other argument. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause honestly, like whatever, who cares? Um, what I was going to ask you, um, when it comes to bands like uh, the Vaseline's and the, the meat puppets um, and REM, you know, specifically REM, let, let me get right to, to what I'm talking about. Um, and we're going to kind of cut to the punch a little bit here. We're, we're jumping around. Um, you know, there's interviews with Michael Stipe um, from before and after uh, the Unplugged sessions where he had been communicating with Kurt, and we just mentioned how they were friends, um, that he wanted the next Nirvana release to be more stripped down to resemble more of an R.E.M. album. So it's really interesting. I think, I think maybe the question I wanted to, to press to you was of these bands, particularly those later alternative bands, was there a sound or a style you think he was really aiming for? Or do you think he was just doing himself and taking whatever influences stuck to him? Yeah, I, I think I think it's the the latter yeah because you know i i watched a couple of interviews of her supposed last interviews where you know he says in utero for example was the sound they were necessarily going for so this is the sound that they finally worked to get um to get to but then after that he said oh i could see myself doing like acoustic johnny cash style type songs well wait a minute if you found the style that you all of a sudden were looking for why would you all of a sudden just go ahead and then divert for that um so i i i don't want to see it was kind of like a trendy fad thing but i i think if you interviewed him in january of a certain year then interviewed him again in october later on that year, you would have two different responses as to what exactly he was going for. That's fair. That's fair. Why don't we, um, let's jump into the early days of Nirvana and, and some of their success. The early days. Here we go. So let's chat about the formation of Nirvana, right? Cobain and bassist cursed or Christ, right? Christ, oh boy, Chris Novoselic <laughs> met while attending Aberdeen High School. Uh, the pair became friends while frequently, uh, while frequenting, geez, the practice space of the Melvins. Okay, here we go. So Cobain wanted to form a band with Novoselic, but Novoselic did not respond for a long period of time. Uh, Cobain gave him a demo tape of his project, Mark, called Fecal Matter. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Three years That's after the- Mark Fecal Matter, huh? Yeah, it's called, bam, 
the band was Mark Fecal Matter. Uh, three, three years after uh, the two first met, Novoselic notified Cobain that he'd finally listened to Fecal Matter, uh, the demo, and he suggested to start a group. Uh, their first band, The Sellouts, was a CCR tribute band, Mark. Credence Clearwater Revival. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, yep. They recruited Bob McFadden on drums, uh, but a month, uh, the but after that, the project fell apart in early 87, and Cobain and Novoselic uh, recruited drummer Aaron Burkhard. Uh, they practiced material from Cobain's Fecal Matter tape, but started working on new material soon after forming. All right, so during its initial months, the band went through a series of names, including Fecal Matter, uh, Skid Row. What? <laughs> Yo. My favorite, Ted, Ed, and Fred. Mm-hmm. Much like your once suggested name, Ed, Ed, and Spaghetti. Remember that? I did. I once suggested <laughs> that. <laughs> and a, and the name Bliss that they went after. Uh, the group settled on Nirvana because, according to Cobain, he wanted a name that was kind of beautiful or nice and pretty instead of mean, raunchy punk name like the Angry Samoans. Uh, Novoselic and Cobain moved to Tacoma and Olympia, Washington, respectively. Uh, they temporarily lost contact with Burkhead and instead practiced with Dale Crover of the Melvins. Now Nirvana started recording their first demos in January of 19. 19- 88. So take it from there, Mark. Yeah, uh, early 1988, uh, Krover, uh then decides he's going to move to San Francisco. What? But uh, re- recommends a dude named Dave Foster uh, as his replacement on drums. Foster Foster's tenure with Nirvana lasted only a few months. Uh, during a stint in jail, he was replaced by, uh, by old Burkhead. Uh, who again departed after telling Cobain he was too hungover to practice one day. Uh, <laughs> Cobain and Nova Selleck, uh put an ad seeking a replacement drummer in The Rocket, a Seattle music publication, but received no satisfactory, satisfactory responses. Uh, meanwhile, a mutual friend introduced them to drummer Chad Channing, and the three musicians agreed to jam together. Channing continued to jam with Cobain and Nova Selleck, However, by Channing's own account, they never actually said, okay, you're in the band. <laughs> Channing played his first show with Nirvana in May 1988. I'd just like to point out, we're not done with the drummer business here uh, for a little bit of a stretch. And I just want to say how goddamn important drummers are to get yes. the band on the ground. You're welcome, world. Yes. Nirvana released its first single, a cover of Shocking Blue's Love Buzz. Love Buzz. In November of 1988, on the Seattle independent record label Sub Pop. The following month, the band began recording its debut album, Bleach, which is influenced by the 1980s punk rock bands like The Melvins and Mud Honey, as well as the 1970s heavy metal sounds of the Black Sabbath. Yeah. The money for recording sessions for Bleach listed as $606.17 on the album sleeve, and Nirvana became the first band to sign an extended contract with Sub Pop. Bleach was released in June 1989 and became a favorite of college radio stations. After the album's release, Nirvana embarked on its first national tour. Although Sub Pop did not promote Bleach as much as other releases, it was a steady seller and had initial sales of 40,000 copies. Not bad there, Frankie. 
Not bad, my man. However, Cobain was upset, the, was upset by the label's lack of promotion and distribution for the album. In late 1989, the band recorded the Blue, that's B-L-E-W, EP, and produced uh, with production, producer Steve Fisk. Uh, in an interview around that time with John Robb in Sounds, Cobain commented that the band's music was changing, saying, I'm going to do a really bad Kurt Cobain voice here. Don't be mad at me, folks. The early songs were really angry, but as time goes on, the songs get pretty popular and popular as I get happier and happier. The songs are now about conflicts and relationship, emotional things. That's just what junkies sound like in my head, folks. So <laughs> I'm sorry if you're a heroin addict and that's what, what I think your voice sounds like. That, that's just how I imagine Kurt Cobain. I know it's wrong. I know he's much graspier than that, but uh, that's what he said to deal with it. Let me ask you a question. Does Ted Theodore Logan also sound like that? Because that's a really good impersonation, I think. <laughs> I mean, like, oh, maybe I am just doing Ted Theodore Logan. Um, <laughs> we wanted to do a Wild Stallions episode. You know, we're going to have to. Come on, Dave, girl. We've got to get back in the phone booth and save Rufus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, let's have the bird from that. So here we are. Now, April of 1990, Nirvana began working on their next album with producer Butch Fig at Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, Butch Fig, drummer of the band, well, garbage. Uh, Cobain and Nova Selleck became disenchanted with Channing's drumming, and Channing expressed frustration at not being involved in the songwriting. So as bootlegs of Nirvana demos with Vig began to circulate in the music industry and draw attention from major labels, Channing left the band. That July, Nirvana recorded uh, the single Sliver uh, with Mudhoney drummer Dan Peters. Now in September 1990, here we go, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins introduced the band to drummer Mark Cheever, uh, sorry, Dave Grohl, uh, <laughs> who's the, who's one Washington, D.C. band Scream had broken up. Grohl auditioned uh, for Nova Selleck and Cobain days after arriving in Seattle. Uh, Nova Selleck later said within two minutes they knew that he was the right drummer. Disenchanted with Sub Pop and with the smart studio sessions generating interest, Nirvana decided to look for a deal with a major record label since no indie label could buy the group out of its contract. Cobain and Nova Selleck consulted Soundgarden and Allison Chains manager Susan Silver for advice. Uh, following Repeated recommendations by Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon, Nirvana signed with DGC Records in 1990. And after that signing, they began to record his first major label album. Do you know what the name of that album was, Mark? Never mind. Yes, never mind. <laughs> the group has offered a number of producers, but held out for Butch Vig. Uh, actually, Slayer mixer Andy Wallace was brought in to create the final mix. Yeah, look at that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, after the album's release, uh, members of Nirvana expressed dissatisfaction, though, with the polished sound the mixer had given Nevermind. Uh, initially, DGC Record was hoping that it would sell like 250,000 copies, um, the, the same that they achieved with Sonic Youth's Go. However, the first single, Smells Like Teen Spirit, marked by Christmas of 91. This led to Nevermind selling 400,000 copies a week in the U.S. And in January of 92, the album displaced Michael Jackson's Dangerous at number one on the Billboard album charts and topped the charts in numerous other countries. I mean, to dethrone, at that time, Michael Jackson, um, 
It's mm-hmm. pretty, pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, the month, uh, that month, never mind, reached number one, and Billboard proclaimed Nirvana is that rare band that has everything critical acclaim, industry respect, pop radio appeal, and rock solid college alternative fan base. The album eventually sold 7 million copies in the U.S. and over 30 million worldwide. Talk about a second coming of sorts where the airwaves were dominated by hair metal and glam, then all of a sudden it shifted, Mark, to this whole alternative and grunge sound. Now, of course, this is going to have an effect, right? So citing exhaustion, uh, Nirvana decided not to undertake another American tour in support of Nevermind, instead opting to make only a handful of performances later that year. So now we're in March of 92, and Cobain sought to reorganize the group's songwriting royalties. Check this out, which at this point, that was split equally, right? Uh, to better represent that he wrote the majority of the music. So Gro and Selleck did not object, but when Cobain wanted the agreement to be retroactive to the release of Nevermind, all of a sudden disagreements began between the two sides, uh, and the band actually came close to breaking up. Uh, so after a week of tension, um, Cobain received a retroactive share of 75% of the royalties. Uh, Mark, as you can imagine, bad feelings about the situation remained within the group afterward. Uh, amid rumors that the band was disbanding due to Cobain's health, Nirvana headlined the closing night of England's 1992 Reading Festival. Uh, Cobain pro- uh, personally programmed the performance lineup, and DGC had uh, hoped to have a new Nirvana album ready by late 92 in the holiday season. Uh, instead, it released a compilation album, Incesticide, in December of 92, and a joint venture between D. CG, DGC, excuse me, and Sub Pop, uh, Incesticide Collect, that was a collection of various and rare Nirvana recordings, uh, intended to provide the material for a better price and higher quality than the bootlegs. Well, I gotta catch my breath, Mark. Yeah, no, for the next album in utero, in utero, Steve Albini, who had a reputation as a principled and opinionated individual in the American indie music scene. While there was speculation that the band chose Albini to record the album due to his underground credentials, Cobain insisted that Albini's sound was simply the one he had wanted Nirvana to have a, quote, natural recording without layers of studio trickery. The sessions with Albini were produced uh, productive and quick, and the album was recorded and mixed in two weeks for $25,000. I owe more than that in student loans, Frank. Bang! Yo. Uh, several weeks, I'm going to rub my eye, several weeks after completing the record's recording sessions, stories ran in the Chicago Tribune and Newsweek that quoted sources from DGC concerned that the album was unreleasable. Oh, As a result, fans began to believe that the band's creative vision might be compromised by their label. While the stories about DGC shelving the album were untrue, the band actually was unhappy with certain aspects of Albini's, Albini's mixes. That's such a weird name. They thought the bass levels were too low, and Cobain felt that Heart-Shaped Box and All Apologies did not, did not sound quote-unquote perfect. Longtime R.E.M. producer Scott Litt was called in to remix these two songs with Cobain adding additional instruments and backing vocals. But what's that? R.E.M.? Having an influence on the end of In Utero, what could have happened afterwards? <laughs> and Steve Albini's actually mentioned Mark in the anti-flag song "Indie Sucks, Hardline Sucks, Emo Sucks." 
uh, where he states Steve Albini, God of Indie Heaven. Oh. Yeah. So, in utero, you know, it topped both the American and British album charts. Uh, Times Christopher John Farley, not to be confused with comedian Chris Farley, wrote in his review of the album, despite the fears of some alternative music fans, Nirvana has gone mainstream. Though this potent new album may once give again force to the mainstream, to the mainstream that uh, for Nirvana and Yurdero went on to sell over five million copies in the United States. That October, Nirvana embarked on its first tour of the United States in two years with the support from half Japanese and the Breeders uh, for the tour. They also added Pat Smear of the punk rock band Germs as the second wow. guitarist. Now we will see him, of course, on what I'm about to talk about next, which is in November 93 of that year, Nirvana recorded the television uh, performance of the MTV Unplugged, which we just reviewed one episode ago. So when you're done with this episode, folks, go check that episode out. Definitely check that out. It's in, it's in the old archives, as we like to call them. Uh, now, let's... Uh, long-time listeners of the show uh, who aren't going back to listen to last week's episode know that we love a good list. Um, but... In the name of this being a very long episode, we're going to keep it short. Frankie, why don't you, um, top to bottom, give me your uh, how you rank all of the Nirvana albums. We'll leave Unplugged uh, in there, uh, throw Incesticide in there. Um, the later live releases, we'll, we'll scratch those. Right. Okay. So, all right. So, I've been thinking about this. Um, if I had to give a list to someone, it'd be Nevermind, Bleach, Unplugged, Cesticide, and Last in Utero. So why don't you go back through that list and tell everyone why you're wrong? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Wait, but you didn't like in utero either, though. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I have to. I think the only difference I would have here is that for me, um, and and as we've made no bones about, Frank is the bigger Nirvana fan. He, he's definitely further down the rabbit hole than I am. I like the Unplugged album the best, and then my list completely repeats Frank. So I would go Unplugged, Nevermind, Bleach, Incesticide, and In Utero. Okay. Uh, actually, I might put In Utero before Insecticide, just because I think I know it a little better. Um, but honestly, I mean, I don't really give a shit. You heard it here, <laughs> folks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bleach sometimes does make it on the first uh, of that list, but um, you know, to avoid getting heat, I'll uh, I'll put never mind there. <laughs> That's All right, so Mark, obviously, this is going to have a profound effect on uh, someone really as fragile as Cobain. So, why don't you uh, chat us up on Cobain's struggles with fame, and of course, then we'll get into the drugs. Yeah, definitely. Um, we'll start with the fame, right? If you uh, have a chance to check out the film Montage of Heck, you'll hear Kurt's mother, Wendy, say, as she heard Nirvana for the first, or excuse me, as she heard Nevermind for the first time, she said to Kurt, you better buckle up because you're not ready for this. Uh, and it turns out she was dead right. Um, I mean, that's probably a bad choice of phrase, but whatever. Um as the single Smells Like Teen Spirit raced up the sales charts all over the world, the singer's initial euphoria was replaced by anxiety. Kevin Kerslack, I hope I said your name right, Kevin, who directed uh, four of the band's music videos, told the New York Post, quote, 
So when we talk about doing the video for Come As You Are, almost the only thing that he told me was that he didn't want to be in it. To me, that screamed, get me out of here, end quote. That's exactly what Kurt did. Withdraw from interviews, opting not to tour for most of 1992, and at a point when Nirvana was the most in-demand band in the world. Uh, a brief reprieve came from the arrival of his daughter, Frances, born in August 1992. Sure. So, yeah, having Frances gave him more pleasure than anything in his life, said Charles R. Cross, who knew the musician from the Seattle music scene and who wrote the Cobain biography, Heavier Than Heaven. And that's what he told, of course, the New York Post. But in the film, as we saw, Montage of Heck, it outlines the musician's drug use continued due to being in pain from an undiagnosed stomach uh, complaint that he bothered him his whole adult life. So I guess, Mark, it's time. Let's address that elephant. Yeah, I, I, I want to underscore the, the word undiagnosed and that stomach complaint. Yeah. Um, and, and you'll figure out why pretty quickly. So when we jump into the, the elephant, which here is, uh, is drug use, uh, Kurt would say that he tried both pot and alcohol at the age of 13. And as a teenager, would experiment with everything from psychedelics to inhalant. We're talking about sniffing some glue there, buddy. Oh. Don't do it, kids. Cobain's first experience with heroin occurred sometime in 1986. Also, don't do it. Administrated to him by a local drug dealer in Tacoma, Washington, who had previously supplied him with oxycotton or oxycodone, excuse me, an aspirin? I was I've read like four or five different things where they talk about this dude who shot him up, and they're like, "Yeah, oxycodone and aspirin." I'm like, "Can you do yeah. it together?" I don't. Maybe I need to do harder drugs. I don't know what any of that. Why you would do aspirin with that? Anyways, um, he used heroin sporadically for several years, but by the for several years, but by the end of 1990, his use developed into a full fledged addiction. Cobain claimed that he was quote, devoted to getting a habit, end quote, as a way of, to self-medicate his undiagnosed stomach condition. There you go. Quote, it starts with three days in a row of doing heroin, and I don't have stomach pain. That's such a relief, uh, he related. However, longtime friend Buzz Al Osborne and not Buzz Aldrin disputes this, saying that his stomach pain was more likely caused by doing heroin uh, saying, quote, he made it up for sympathy, and so he could use it as an excuse to stay loaded. Of course he was vomiting. That's what people on heroin do. They vomit. It's called vomiting with a smile on your face, end quote. Wow. Yeah, pretty crazy stuff. Uh, heroin's not one of those drugs I've done, nor one that I plan to do. And again, kids at home, don't do it. As heroin use began to affect the band Nevermind's uh, supporting tour, one such example came the day that the band's 1992 performance on Saturday Night Live, when Nirvana had a photo session with Michael Levine. Frank, you know Michael Levine, right? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> having used heroin beforehand, Kurt fell asleep several times during the shoot, later divulging to biographer Michael Azar Azarad. I'm going to assume that I said that right. You know Michael Azarad too, right? Absolutely. Um, Good friends. So, I mean... What are they supposed to do? They're not going to be able to stop me. So I really don't care. Obviously, to them, it was like practicing witchcraft or something. They don't know anything about it. Excuse me. They don't know anything about it. So they thought it, 
that at any second I was going to die, end quote. I know he really said that. Um, the morning after the band's performance on Saturday Night Live, Cobain experienced his first near-death overdose after injecting heroin. His wife, Courtney Love, excuse me, his wife, Courtney Love, uh, <laughs> resurrecting him, uh, according to her. Then, prior to a performance at the New Music Seminar in New York City in July of 1993, he suffered another heroin overdose. Rather than calling for an ambulance, Love injected Cobain again with naloxone to bring him out of his unconscious state. Cobain proceeded to, to perform with Nirvana, giving the public every indication that everything was business as usual. Which only leads me to the question, was business as usual him just like nodding out on stage or did yeah. he really rock out that night? Um, I mean, according to the, the videos Frank seen, some of it's not that great. Yeah, I mean... Oof. 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 Yeah. What can I say? I mean, listen, as talented as he was, um, some performances were way better than others. So why were these better? And then why were these not uh, up to par? Oh, this could definitely be that. And it's funny. It's being masked with the stomach, right? Because I've seen interviews where he's like, oh, the stomach is so much. The stomach is so much. Uh, when Again, when when you're like that and, and when you're down this path, uh, you're making every excuse in the book. And I think that's what that's exactly what that was. Um, but now we get you know, into a really crazy time, Mark, where we get into his final days in death. And um, yeah, so six days prior uh, to his body being discovered, Cobain was practically missing. So he was missing for days. And it said he wanted to quit Nirvana, according to course wife courtney love uh, he told her that he hated being in nirvana and he couldn't play with them anymore he only wanted to work only wanted to work with rem's michael stipe i mean mm-hmm. that, yeah following cobain's failed suicide attempt in march 94 love along with several of his friends and bandmates enlisted the help of intervention counselor oh. stephen chadoff mark you know him i know and they call chadoff. right <laughs> together we don't we've never come off drugs or anything like that together we, just, we play bridge Right, exactly. I play cribbage with him, actually, but <laughs> and they call the kind of guy. Exactly, and now they called him to see what could be done. And Chadoff explained to Rolling Stone he was using up in Seattle. He was in full denial. It was very chaotic, and there they were in fear for his life. It was a crisis. So late March, Love, Nirvana's Chris Novoselic and Pat Smear, along with several other friends, went through with staggering, with staging, I'm sorry, an intervention at Cobain's home. During this meeting, Love reportedly threatened to leave Cobain, with whom she shared daughter Francis Bean with, and his band also issued a full ultimatum of breaking up the band should he not agree to seek treatment at the rehab facility. All right, so now several days later, Cobain would do that. But first, he paid a visit to pal Dylan Carson, or Carlson, excuse me, who also participated in the aforementioned intervention at his Seattle home on March 30th. Citing problems with trespassers on his property, Cobain asked for for help for his help securing a firearm. Hmm. He seemed normal. We'd been talking, and Carlson later said, plus I'd loaned him guns before. Okay, so that I mean you have to that, something to unpack there, right? Plus there's uh there's conflicting interviews with Carlson where Carlson says, Oh, there had been break-ins in, at the house. Right. And he bought the gun for break-ins. And it's like, 
about the gun for break-ins and then left? He left the loaded firearm for criminals to find? Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Plus, Carlson is that Cobain gave him about $300 to buy a 20-gauge shotgun and a box of ammunition from Stan's gun shop, knowing that Cobain was about to depart for treatment near Los Angeles. Carlson said that his friend that his friend's uh, need for purchase uh, did give him pause. It seemed weird that he was buying a shotgun before he was leaving, so I offered to hold it until he got back. Cobain, however, insisted on keeping the weapon himself, and according to the police, he likely dropped off the gun at his home before traveling to Exodus Recovery Center in Marina del Rey, California, later that day. Hmm, 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 Mark. That's all I got to say. The question marks are piling up, right, folks? Uh, according to an account given to local Seattle newspaper by Courtney Love herself, Kurt telephones Courtney, uh, saying in part, just remember, no matter what, I love you. Later that night, after spending just two days in rehab, staffers said that he alerted them that he was stepping out to smoke a cigarette on the patio. Love explained that he was, ele- that, ugh, excuse me, Love explained that's when he allegedly jumped over the more than six foot high brick wall and disappeared. Look, we've got a guy who's two days off of the smack, smoking a cigarette. He was a tall guy, but are you jumping a six foot fence at that point? I don't know, man. It's five nine. More questions. You know, hey, look, I'm I'm I like to say I'm five nine and a half, five ten. I'm not clearing a, a six foot fence. I'm telling you that right now. Not unless I mean. In all the images you see, it's like a wood slat fence and not like a, a chain link fence that maybe you can. Anyways, a lot of questions there. Law enforcement officials claim uh, Cobain had barricaded himself inside the green room uh, on April 5th above the garage in their home. An electrician who came to the home to install a security system discovered his body three days later. Hmm. Love later recounted to MTV that after taking drugs, Cobain used the shotgun Carlson had helped him purchase days earlier to shoot himself in the head, thus ending his short life. She also said that her husband left a note in red ink that she read from, excuse me, that she read from at a Seattle memorial service. Very odd that she would read his suicide note at a memorial service. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Very convenient, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we all remember, I remember, Mark, I'm sure you remember where you were when you heard the mm-hmm. Kurt, Kurt Loader from MTV News uh, come on to say yeah. that. Yeah, 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 exactly. With the typewriter, right? MTV News. And Kurt Loader comes on and says the body of a Nirvana frontman, Kurt Cobain, was found. And uh, that was crazy. And I believe, obviously, I remember vaguely seeing uh the television clips of Courtney Love there with the circle of fans reading the uh, letter that had different sized handwriting right that's that's kind of what we're <laughs> we're going to get to right so here's the the stickiest and the trickiest part of this whole thing mm-hmm. uh it's it's not so black and white right there's a bunch of conspiracy theories that go along with it mark um so you know it's always been the stir of such controversy um and if you break it down it's a matter of Really, at the end of the day, did he kill himself or did he not? Now, if he didn't, who did and why? And there's lots and lots of little bits and pieces. So we're going to try again to fill in as much as we can. And as Mark said earlier, hey, listen, we're going to miss some stuff. But you know what? 
This is this is what we got. So uh, two dudes. We got Ian Halperin, sorry, and Max Wallace, and they produced two books on the events surrounding Kurt Cobain's death. One was Who Killed Kurt Cobain. This was in '98. That was released, and Love and Death: The Murder of Kurt Cobain in 2004. Um, now the website Live for Live Music. Uh, spoke with Ian Halperin, uh, who happens to be a number one New York Best Times selling author and award-winning filmmaker. He says, the only thing I suggest is reopening of the case, says Halperin. Uh, his basis is that solely on the forensic evidence, the horror that haunts Halperin is the number of copyright, copycat, excuse me, suicides emulating Cobain, which is a trend sadly still occurring. There are estimates suggesting 200 plus people have taken their lives in copycat suicides. Oof. An idea only made more sorrowful by the possibility that he may have not taken his life as love and the Seattle PD have reported. Right, Mark? Yeah. So now Max Wallace, excuse me, Max Wallace's book investigates the allegations of one Mr. Tom Grant, a licensed private investigator and former detective of the LA County Sheriff's Department. Grant was hired by none other than Courtney Love to find Kurt Cobain when he left the Exodus Recovery Center in Marina Del Rey. California on April 1st, 1994, and could not be located. However, this information wouldn't come out until they met in a hotel after Love asked him to visit, stating that her credit cards were stolen and being used, only to disclose that he was missing at the meeting, and that the person using the credit cards actually turned out to be Kurt Cobain buying himself airplane tickets back to Seattle. Right. Anyways. On top of that, Love had phoned in a missing persons report to the Seattle Police Department the next day, pretending to be Cobain's mother, Wendy O'Connor. Love stated in O'Connor's name that Cobain was missing, suicidal, in possession of a shotgun. Grant later evaluated this call and, be, and being a, <laughs> excuse me, he, Grant later evaluated this call as being a diversion to paint Cobain as suicidal as he was being set up to be murdered. Mm. The mission left by Love's report would be that no less than the singer's mother, but that Cobain was in danger of himself and to steer the investigations toward a verdict of suicide. After refusing to allow Grant to, sur uh, to have surveillance units watch her home in Seattle, Love, who remained in Los Angeles, sent Grant to Seattle to find Cobain with the help of Kurt's quote-unquote best friend, Dylan Carlson, the gentleman who helped him purchase a gun. Love would begin using Carlson to pass information to Grant and no longer speak to him directly while he was in Seattle. Tom Grant's theory leans heavily on the amount of heroin in Cobain's blood. The levels in Cobain's blood was triple the maximum lethal dose to a severe addict. Grant's assertion is that with so much heroin in his bloodstream, Cobain could not have lifted the Model 11 20-gauge shotgun to his face and pulled the trigger. The autopsy has never been released to the public, so the extent of the drugs in Cobain's bloodstream is based on newspaper accounts Experts still debate whether or not 
Cobain could have fired the gun uh, under these circumstances. It's, yeah. I mean, it's a crazy amount of uh, heroin. Uh, certainly he was a known user, but there's a lot of really wishy-washy things going on. Frank, why don't you, uh, let's talk about the, the crime scene. Yeah, absolutely. So original reports stated that Cobain was barricaded in a small greenhouse room with a stool wedged up against the door. The truth, the simple push-button lock was all that sealed the room. So someone potentially could have simply pushed the button and closed the door behind them as they left. Now, reports said that Cobain left his license out for identification purposes in case of disfigurement, hid his, which hid his identity. In reality, a police officer had removed the license from the singer's wallet, which was then photographed and pictures taken at the scene. Mark, you want to say something? Yeah, so the... Uh the stool wedged under the chair is an interesting thing, right? Cause it, it right. comes up, it's in the police report. Um, and what you can see of photographs taken of the green room, uh, either before this incident or from paparazzi outside trying to figure out what's going on is that there is an opposite door from the one that officers broke into to get in, which was again, just a simple push lock. The other door had a stool with a plant on it effectively blocking that door but wasn't the main door and and, and was easily uh i mean it, we're talking about a, a stool with a plant on it was kicked over by anyone trying hard enough so <laughs> yeah I, I just to throw that little bit in there no you're right you're right and and what's also you know interesting is the suicide note left actually seemed to describe that cobain was quitting nirvana and had been tired of the stardom uh nirvana now remembered well, Dave Grohl obviously confirmed years later that the group was breaking up and an appearance he made on Howard Stern um, that, you know, he confirmed that uh, or at least alluded to it. Uh, the size of the writing really at the end of the note changed dramatically um, as if there uh, was only, um, you know, seemed that Cobain had to say a pertinent goodbye to his wife and young daughter. Now, Tom Grant, who was uh, also concerned that the gun, the shells, and the note had no discernible fingerprints and that the note appeared to be, or at least in key parts, a forgery. All right, this is where, I mean, very interesting here. And the gun was not checked for prints by authorities until May 6th of 1994, which was a full month later. Uh, the note was only released because Tom Grant pretended to need gra uh, glasses to read it when Courtney Love showed it to him, and he asked to run a copy off on her fax machine, Mark. Yeah, it's really incredible. Even more incredible than that is six months later, the cops gave Courtney Love the gun he used to have it melted down so no fingerprints could ever be taken off of it. It's amazing. It's amazing. The autopsy was completed April 8th, 1994, the same day Cobain's body was discovered. In a case full of unexpected twists and turns, the coroner was Dr. Nicholas, that's Nicholas with a K, Hartstern. Oh, let's just pretend that's how you say it. The producer of several Nirvana concerts, uh, Excuse me. Um, he the the corner was not the producer of several Nirvana concerts who had personally known Cobain and Love. It, that can't be right. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Um, I don't sorry. Know that's, I don't know how that snuck in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, critics allege that the case should have been investigated as a homicide and not uh, and not initially begun with the conclusion that it was a suicide uh, until it moved forward. Horseman later was killed in a uh, base jump accident 
in Switzerland uh, in August 6, 2002. What's really crazy here is that they determined that this was a suicide on the scene. And then... <laughs> um, yeah, so they determined it was a suicide and basically just cleaned it up. Um, it is said that, excuse me, that uh, Hartstrom did know right. Courtney Love in some fashion, right, Frank? Correct, correct. Yeah. Um, so excuse me for that little uh, mix up there. Tom Grant, uh, our detective here, went on to tell Tom Lusky, uh radio program, uh, and stated bluntly that Courtney Love and Michael... Callie DeWitt were involved in a conspiracy to kill Kurt Cobain. Love responded to Grant's allegations by offering him more work uh, on different cases, which he felt was an attempt to bribe him. DeWitt was a friend to the couple and the nanny for the couple's daughter, Frances Bean Cobain. DeWitt was in the Cobain house when Cobain was missing and had seen Kurt there as DeWitt lay semi-asleep in bed. A note DeWitt left for Kurt to, to call Courtney is believed by Grant to have been staged by DeWitt wow. uh, himself, an active heroin user and notably former long-term boyfriend of Courtney Love. Love later had DeWitt's father do extensive renovations to her home and got Callie a lucrative job with Geffen Records. I didn't know that, the, the record part. I did know that uh, supposedly the father was responsible for the renovation uh, that removed the greenhouse and garage from the property. A lot, lot of interesting kind of stars aligning here, Mark, if you think about it, not, not in a good way. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. You have um, your ex, you have your wife's long-term ex-boyfriend and, and his girlfriend living in your home no says no one nothing to anyone about seeing him but magically leaves a note that he figured out that he was there um and it's interesting if you watch soaked in bleach uh tom grant goes into detail about how they came into the house the bed was made they were looking for the gun they tore the bed apart um no gun in fact nothing just bed stuff and then when courtney finally returns to seattle from la she claims that she found the suicide note under her pillow when clearly she couldn't have because Kurt had been dead by the time they searched the house looking for the gun and, and tore apart the bed. And she got home and found, love, uh, found the suicide note. So it couldn't have been under the, the pillow where she claimed it was because he had just looked there with Carlson at her side, at his side, excuse me, when he did it. So... You know, it's crazy because a lot of like well thought out details, right, are are into this. Because usually when you know you're trying to dispute something that didn't happen, you you make up like a you know silly excuse, uh, uh, you know, about something that, that that's not really intertwined like this. That doesn't have all the details. That's not lined up properly. But there's a lot of details here for a story that supposedly never happened, right? <laughs> yeah. well, the best the best part about that is that he recorded the conversation where she says. I found it under the, the pillow. And he says, you couldn't have found it under the pillow. I searched the entire bed. I would have found it yeah. if it were there before he killed himself. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So upon meeting you know, her at the, at the hotel room, this is Tom Grant, knew this investigation, of course, would be like wouldn't be like any other. Uh, Grant has quoted uh, Love as saying, if any of this hits the press, I'll sue your ass. Uh, he then began to tape nearly every conversation he had with all those around and involved from that day on. So Grant has recordings of Love discussing Cobain seeking a divorce from her. Love and Cobain had a prenup agreement, and she seemed initially destined um, to become a bigger star when Cobain's light wound, uh, his light was shining obviously a little bit more brightly. Uh, love stood to suffer financially if the couple divorced. So Grant also theorizes that love would also uh, potentially gain considerable sympathy if Cobain, of course, committed suicide rather than divorcing her. Uh, in Grant's minds, this was the motive behind what he labels to be a murder. Now, Cobain had allegedly overdosed on Rufinol and champagne at the Exocere Hotel in Rome on March 4th, 94. Uh, Cobain, uh, Courtney Love, excuse me, told journalist Robert Hilborn of the Los Angeles Times that Cobain was in a coma for 20 hours and was legally dead. Uh, Love claimed that he was reported as an overdose and was uh, it was actually a suicide attempt and that she had burned the note. Uh, Love stated that uh, he had gobbled 50 tablets from her prescription. Now, Dr. Olsalvo Galetta treated Cobain, and he told Halperin and Wallace that uh, we usually can tell that it was a suicide attempt, and then this didn't actually look like one to me. So this discrepancy in the accounts led Tom Grant and others to question if Love was using uh, this amended story to build a false trial of the history of suicide to cover wrongdoing in the singer's death. Of course, it's worth noting that until his death, she had never suggested this incident was anything other than an accident, Mark. Yeah, that's an interesting timing for an accident, as on April 12th, 1994, DGC Records released Live Through This, Hole's first major label release. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Yeah. You talk about timing and lining things up. And, you know, that unfortunate, very gross joke. Did you hear what Courtney Love said when Kurt Cobain killed himself? The hole's going to be big. Um, I apologize. That joke is gross and it's inappropriate, but it's, I mean, it's funny. Um, anyways. Tom Grant's account uh, has him speaking to Cobain and Love's lawyer, uh, Roseanne, excuse me, Rosemary Carroll. Rosemary represented Kurt and Courtney and, in, and is Francis Bean's godmother. Uh, excuse me, she's their um, entertainment lawyer. Uh, according to Grant, Cobain was intending to divorce Love and Carroll urged him to invest the, uh, excuse me, investigate the circumstances Carol, oh boy, I read all of that backwards. I'm so sorry. Um, uh, she suggested that Love investigate the circumstances of Cobain's death. Uh, Carol also said that in Love's backpack, she had found samples of what appeared to be Love or someone connected to her practicing what is believed to be Kurt's handwriting. You can see images of that in Soap and Bleach. Yeah. This aroused suspicion due to the suicide note left by Cobain to be more about retiring from music than performing uh, than permanently from life. Um, the end of the note seemed to include an additional made at a later point, possibly written by a second person, uh, addition of very generic uh, suicide terms that a lot of people use when writing a suicide note. And as Frank mentioned earlier, 
it was drastically different from the rest of the note in its handwriting style, which isn't uncommon for Cobain's writing. Uh, however, if you look at the the suicide note and see it for what it is, it's clearly that these two sections were written at different times and quite possibly by different people. Anyways, um, oh boy, Carol also stated that Love wrote a memo for herself to, quote, get arrested, which she indeed did while Grant was searching for her missing husband. While she was allegedly in supervised rehab at the time of their first meeting with Grant, she claimed she couldn't return to Seattle with him because she had, quote, business in L.A. Carol would later confirm that she did not have business in L.A. at that time, then suggested that the business might have been securing her alibi by getting arrested in L.A. When Carol realized that Grant was taping the conversation and expressing doubt over suicide, she uttered, oh, shit. And she added that this is just my theory before hanging up. She has not commented publicly on these matters. Pretty crazy stuff, right, Frank? Oh, my God. Insane. Yeah. It's, it's like, and it's. I hope you guys at home listening or wherever you are will understand that, like, processing this as you read it again, even though you know how crazy it is, is still, like, right. so mind-blowing retarded that, like, it trips you up. Anyways, yeah. Courtney Love was charged with drug possession and for having a doctor's prescription pad in her hotel. Love was cleared, but it seems strange that uh, she would leave a memo seemingly foretelling of the arrest regarding the key moment in time, uh, regarding such a key moment in time. Accounts have her calling in her, uh, excuse me, accounts have her calling in her own overdose to newspapers from the telephone in the hotel before the arrest. Had Grant not recorded so many conversations, it would be easy to dismiss his claims as far-fetched and ridiculous. But he has the tapes to support his accusations, which is where and how Max Wallace was able to make the statements found in his book, Love and Death, The Death of Kurt Cobain. Yeah, it was crazy, Mark, is fast forward to 2014 headlines uh, incorrectly declared that the Seattle police were reopening the case on the Nirvana, on the death of Nirvana from Ann Kurt Cobain. Why would uh, they do that, right? right. Four roll, rolls of film, uh, which police had taken at the time of Cobain's death, have left. They've been left undeveloped and had sat in evidence uh, within the 20th anniversary of the case approaching. Police decided to develop the film. Now, Seattle detective Mike Shizneski clarified that the current status of the case to the press, it's a suicide this is a closed case. Now, I mean, this is a lot to read, folks. And, you know, in our research, and a lot of it is, uh, of course, as you're you're hearing us mumble and stumble because it's so heavy in, in its content. Um, but we have to get and we have to ask each other, I think, the question, and I'll start with you, Mark. What do we think happened here, Mark? What, what, what can you say after doing all this and reading this and sifting and sorting through it? Yeah, so obviously there's there's a ton of stuff we didn't get to and, and couldn't get to. Like um, the, the shotgun was turned away from Kurt, which isn't a natural way uh, in, in most suicides where somebody is placing a rifle or a shotgun to their face. Um, they typically do it with the trigger in. Uh, in this situation, it happened to be out, um, which is uncommon. Another uncommon thing is that the shotgun shell um, would have projected out of the right side from Kurt's body and should have landed to his right, yet uh, it was on his left. Uh, some people have argued that the 
uh, specifically the Seattle Police Department, uh, have argued that the gun, when triggered, flipped over and thus casting the shell to the side, to the to the left instead of to the right. Uh, however, because of the way Kurt's hand was on the gun, uh, his, his death grip, if you will, would have locked the barrel in place. Or if the, the gun had fired and begun turning, it would not have landed perfectly straight up and down. Um, so there's a lot of questions there. If you look at what crime scene photos are available, and mind you, the Seattle Police Department refers to none of them as crime scene photos as this was a suicide. And that's why supposedly those four rolls of films never got developed, because you, quote unquote, do not develop film from a suicide. It's not a homicide. There's no need to do it. Uh, unless, of course, you're just trying to get this taken care of as quickly as possible. Uh, his body was uh, cremated within weeks of his death. I, I don't even think it was weeks. I think it was like two Um uh, the shotgun, as I mentioned before, uh, was given to Courtney Love something like six weeks after the incident for her to melt down. Wasn't even technically her shotgun, but they gave it to her to melt it down. So any fingerprints that would have been on it are now permanently gone. Um, right. They allowed her to bulldoze the house, uh, or excuse me, the the garage with the green room up above it. Um, you know, a lot of people give Tom Grant a hard time. You know, they, he had been to the house you know, the night before they found the body, supposedly the night before that as well. How did they not search the green room? Well, there had been five other people who had gone to the house looking for Kurt, um, not counting Callie, right? Um, who none of them searched the greenhouse either because according to them, if you go at night, it's very difficult to even see the building with it in it. So there's a lot of really mixed up pieces here where, what else could have happened? Hey, look, for all we know, Kurt Cobain went out to where you can find heroin on the streets of Seattle, found somebody who recognized him. That person went back to his home, tried to take advantage of him, probably got whatever money was in his wallet, and then blew his brains out. Could have happened, right? More likely, Callie was involved. They set him upstairs. They gave him way more than he knew he could use, helped him pull the trigger. I think I, I was getting to the point of the, the crime scene photos. There's not a lot of blood in the area around him and where he was facing. Now, mind you, obviously, most of the blood would have been up and behind him, but there still would have been some cast in front of him. Uh, what that suggests to me is somebody holding him upright, somebody and then pulling the trigger on the gun, allowing him to fall back. Um, and then whatever scattered blood they had, whatever splattered blood they had on him, they were then able to get rid of. After all, homeboy says he didn't see him until the 4th, um, and then he disappeared on the 5th, and then nobody saw him until the 8th. I don't know how you're living in that house, but don't manage to go check that room. Right. Right, exactly. And then there's the thing we were talking about earlier, too, which we didn't even talk about, was uh, his running into Duff McKagan, too, right? On the plane on the way back, right? <laughs> yeah, so the, uh, the, the assertion that somebody stole his credit card and – Somebody in L.A. stole his credit card and then bought a plane ticket to Seattle, bought two plane tickets to Seattle. I think it's more likely, right, because Duff McKagan uh, of, of Guns N' Roses, for those of you who think we're just referencing another smart person uh, that you would otherwise <laughs> never hear of, um, claims that Kirk was actually kind of happy to see him, was pleasant with him, um, and then got on the flight. But but also noted that Kirk seemed kind of out of it and that something was wrong, right? I don't know that I trust, trust Duff McKagan's... Um, 
understanding of Kurt's mental state. I don't, you know, obviously what conversation they did or did not have, um, you know, you'd have to pry out of Duff, but good luck with that. Um, but it does confirm that he bought air, airplane tickets in his own name, probably bought two tickets so that he wouldn't have somebody sitting next to him. Right. I mean, he's one of the largest rock stars in the world. The last thing you want is like, Oh, um, are, are you a B or C? Yeah. I'm, I'm B. I get the middle team. <laughs> hey, aren't you? You just smells like teen, teen spirit, right? <laughs> um, you know. So yeah. So to me, it makes sense. He bought two plane tickets, right? Um, it's an interesting, interesting story because there's a lot of people around him who were suggesting that he was actually kind of excited about going to rehab. And when his daughter visited him. Uh, the the nanny with the daughter said that he was in great spirits and and was happy. Nobody thought he was suicidal, uh, except for Courtney, who never said anything about him being suicidal until after his death, which right. is interesting. When he's overdosed allegedly a number of times and then has this uh, pill and champagne overdose, mm-hmm. uh, which you oh it was an accident, it was an accident, and then immediately oh no, well you just say that because it's the media and you got to call it, you know, an accident so that it's not suicide because people would think suicide bad, you know, like I don't believe her horseshit. Yeah. So taking a deep breath now, you go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, Jesus H man, I don't even know where to start with this. I mean, listen, I could see the cases for both. I mean, but listen, just going through his early life and his formative years and seeing how he handled the fame, mixed that with drug use. And I can't help but think that he was just, a self-destructive guy and 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 a mindful suicide attempt was going to eventually be inevitable now here's the thing though i can't speak that if there was assistance or not during this process or some sort of assistance at some point during this or someone else knew about it or someone else was there that's hard to argue against when you see all these things Uh, i i do think though he was mindful that eventually he was at some point wanting to do this. Um, but Jesus, Mark, I mean, you know, it's, it's so tough to say, right. Cause if the theories are right, right. If, if this private investigator who did all this research and has all this dirt on Courtney love is correct. Um, the person who holds the key to the kingdom, the person who controls all the information about what we know about Kurt, the, you know, she has all rights to his estate, um, is Courtney Love. She's the one able to release the diary. She can release what she wants. She can suggest that it means whatever she wants. So it really leaves you, right. know, you and I and the listener here to just kind of put together the pieces that are out there and think it over and say, you know, is is as possible as it is, is that he was loaded on heroin and playing with his shotgun and then just slammed it on the ground and it went off. Uh, you know, it's possible. The fact of the matter is, is it's not that probable. Right. You know, there's, there's, there's more, more things pointing her way than against her, you know? Right. So how do you know? Let's, let's try to be a little less depressing for a few minutes here, Frank. Sure. Um, let's <laughs> talk about his legacy and his impact because he did leave, you know, I joked last week that uh, Nirvana's Unplugged in New York is uh, Generation Generation X's most significant contribution to society. Um, <laughs> what do you think? What's, what's, what's their legacy? What's the impact 
And, you know, as a, as a songwriter and performer, where does Kurt Cobain rank for you? Sure. And I, and I get this, I get asked this often and I think about it quite often as well. Now I'm in agreement that he's one of these generational talents and had a larger than life persona. Uh, I think his songwriting was great and he was gifted at it and being but even though being a performer uh, and there was he was good at being a performer, but there was flaws in the performance with his voice. And that worked for him because that gave him a unique personality, almost a vulnerable personality. Uh, I do think he's a tragic figure whose paths were partially decided by family and life circumstances. It always reminds me of Michael Jackson, you know, Neverland and the weird things that Michael Jackson would do, in my personal opinion, were a direct result of his father, Joe. Jackson and I think it's a it's a it's a tragic scenario. Uh, Cobain was a product of that and when anointed the voice of a new generation that's a perfect recipe for destruction. Now for me personally I do hold his works in high regards. He and Nirvana shifted the music right Mark from this glam metal surface level crap that was out there to a more refined and serious styled nature of, of rock. Now to me personally I found that I was more impacted by what happened after which is where there was a void and a band that came in to fill that void i think was then green day uh and then followed by the offspring and the rancid i mean you know grunge was here or what they called grunge it was here and it was gone when cobain was gone uh, music needed something to make a big splash again and to me that was the rise of punk to the mainstream again we said you know nirvana has punk influences and they are those first two albums were punk, but Green Day really pushed punk, I think, into the uh, into the mainstream. And I gained influence from um, from that musically. And of course, I I have uh, influence from Cobain as well. You know, it, it, people I think also put him and they romanticize about him and they put him on a pedestal and an idol, uh, and and he's an idol to a lot of people. Almost, uh, if you were to compare it to Michael Jordan, where you can't find flaws with Michael Jordan, well, he's not quite Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is someone that people should be looking up to um, on a personal level, too. And I find it hard to kind of look up to him on a personal level based on how he conducted his life. Uh, so to make a long story short, I appreciate his writings. I think he was extremely talented. I find him, um, uh, them to be super impactful, but I do feel he's a, he's a tragic figure in life. Um, what, what about you, Mark? Doesn't, uh, isn't Michael Jordan known for having a crippling gambling problem? Yeah. There was the gambling problem. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think it's interesting, you know, um, you and I are separated by two years, but I think we both see Kurt Cobain and, and kind of, very different lights. Um, I can appreciate the hits. I can appreciate he was the man writing the right songs at the right time because hair and glam metal were going out of fashion and the world wanted something louder and heavier and less polished and, and, and a little more honest, right? We wanted dudes wearing less makeup. Um, he still had pretty long hair, but like for the most part, it, it, it was the antithesis of hair metal you know what's what's really unfortunate to me is that he's almost more remembered for being part of the the infamous 27 club the uh absolutely musicians who passed away um you know uh theoretically because of their own whatever right uh, cobain and, joplin jim morrison brian yeah, jones Brian Jones. Amy Winehouse, Robert Johnson. It, 
it's a it's an insane list of great talents that left us before their time. Um, you know, I, I'm not prepared to say that Kurt Cobain checked out because he was out of music, right? Maybe Bradley Noel was from Sublime. There you go. Uh, there you go. But but I, I don't think you can say that about Kurt Cobain. You know, I think if you listen to a lot of those interviews from Michael Stipe, he was ready to grow as a musician. He was ready to really develop his sound and his style. And I, I think that's uh, not any clearer than the unplugged record, right? With the choices he made in terms of songs of his own that he played and choices of songs uh, that he chose to cover. Um, so, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think he's got a great, you know, you can't talk about early 90s mainstream music without talking about Nirvana. Um, and you can't talk about the 27 Club without mentioning Kurt Cobain. So it's one of those those uh, double-edged swords where for as good as it is, it's, it's tragic and sad and, and really kind of heartbreaking, honestly. So, so a two-part question now for you is, number one is if he would have survived and Nirvana would have carried through, uh, would uh, Foo Fighters have formed or not necessarily Foo Fighters, would Dave Grohl have, have gone out and uh, done his own thing? And would the subsequent albums after that of Nirvana be as good? You know, we talked about this again. I mentioned Green Day earlier, and to me, they really haven't had a good album in quite a while, but those first five or six were super impactful. So how do you think that would have played out? You know, so obviously this is dependent on a few different things, right? Um, you know, the first being the ultimatum that the band gave him. If he, if he does still leave rehab um, and goes back to Seattle and, and his death does not occur, I think that's probably the most PC way to say it, would they still have broken up? I, I got to imagine, even though um, Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl are splitting 25% um, of the, the cash still made from Nevermind and uh, In Utero, they probably still live in pretty good off that money alone. In fact, uh, Chris Novoselic really hasn't uh, done anything of fame or notoriety. Right. Nirvana, um, but appears to be living quite nicely. I'm not, I'm, I'm sure he's living within his means. Um, you know, he had an interesting quote, um, which was, he was talking about Kurt and his demons and his use of heroin. And he said, you know, I just let him do it because, my poison was alcohol and he never said anything to me. So I let him have his and he let me have mine. It's a really interesting dynamic there of how they functioned as a group and how things worked out. So would Dave Grohl have still left and formed the Foo Fighters? Possibly, right? We did talk about some of that tension there at the end, certainly after the, the revenue split of 75-25, um, you know, the ultimatum of whether he goes to rehab or not. There's a lot of different things at play there. You know, um, I made that joke earlier about how hard it is to find a drummer. They could have found another drummer at that stage, you know, um, you know, it, it's, it's not to suggest that they wouldn't have. Right. Um, certainly the three of them had a great dynamic together. Um, you add Pat smear to that. Who's still good friends with Dave Grohl to this day. Um, there's a great dynamic there. Um, so the Foo Fighter records, I think to answer that question, um, it's a possibly, uh, even if, if they'd taken an extended break, he still could have easily pumped out that record. I mean, he did it in six days by himself totally. um, with just your boy, Greg Dooley, uh, sitting in the chair. So, uh, 
So it, it's plausible, right? It, it, it's definitely plausible that Foo Fighters still happen. It's certainly going to be a different Foo Fighters, I think. Um, in terms of the what Nirvana albums would have sounded like from then, you know, obviously that depends on a few things, right? Like, does he go down to Athens, Georgia, hang out with Michael Stipe, write the next record, maybe record it there, um, maybe use them as the backing band, maybe who who knows i mean it could have gone so many different directions right he could have done that pared down johnny cash on an acoustic guitar thing i mean it clearly worked uh and he didn't know that it worked yet in unplugged perhaps he knew that from the performance but he wasn't aware of how successful it would eventually be um or would he have continued down that in utero path um but maybe with some more thoughtful lyrics um as he he really emulated from michael stipe that he wanted to, um, or that he expressed to Michael Stipe, he really wanted to emulate his style. Um, so there's so many different factors. And, and then there's really the, the kind of the big, the big problem, right? Which is that fans um, push their will upon what could have been, right? And that's yep. literally yep. what I'm doing right now. I'm just less of a fan than, than most Nirvana addicts. Um, <laughs> You know, a lot of them have theories about which way the band was going to go and which totally. sound they were going to chase. And um, the fact of the matter is we we don't know. And that's kind of what made Nirvana so great was the unpredictability of those records. Right. If you heard Bleach, you didn't know that Nevermind was coming. If you heard Nevermind, you had no idea in utero was coming. And that's what makes them so kind of cool in that way is that each one really is its own identity and each one goes the direction it was going to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Uh, during kind of us talking about that, what ifs, uh, I, I, I would direct people to go to uh, YouTube at some point and check out something called Nirvana smells like 2050. And it's a hyper real evolution of the band. So it, it takes it from 1984 to a hypothetical uh 2050 and it shows all three of them kind of aging and it talks about kind of like what would happen musically to them and, and it, it is pretty cool it's pretty well done now obviously you know who's to say what would necessarily happen but it, but it's pretty interesting to to see that so uh check that out uh nirvana smells like 2050 on there but uh, um does it accurately get how fat dave Grohl gets <laughs> No comment on that. If you're listening, please know that I love you and I am way fatter than you at any time in your life. <laughs> so don't take that personally. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. That was some episode, Mark. It's almost, uh, you know, it reminds me of the Fugazi episode where I need a therapy after that, you know? I think we, we may still need therapy after that. I mean, why don't we why don't we loosen it up a little bit for next week? Hey, by the way, folks, that's the end of the episode. Um, yeah. We had a lot of fun, but my God, was that a lot. Um, so we're, we're going to loosen it up for next week. Something fun, something new. What do you, what do you got in mind, Frankie? Absolutely, Mark. And and I do have to drop a shout out to someone who really loves Nirvana and Cobain okay. and someone we know, Mr. Brian mm-hmm. Brito, because he's going to be he's going to be listening to this. So he, mm-hmm. he really enjoyed our last episode, and yeah, hope, hoping he enjoys this. Hey, but let's talk about next the, episode. Stay tuned for the very end of this episode where we give you Brian's uh, home phone number and and personal address. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> I'm amped for this next episode, Mark. Uh, this yeah. is actually, if if we were to have a season one, this would be the end of it, 
right? With uh, you know, episode 51 here uh, before we break into the new year. So I'm amped because we're going to talk about an album, Paradise. Now, not an album what we reviewed a couple of episodes ago from the band Cold Ears. This is from a band we really love, Red City Radio. Uh, we do love Cold Ears too, just for the record, but we adore Red City Radio. Yeah. And they just came out with a new album, Paradise. And we are so amped to really go track by track on this. And in conjunction to that, Mark, we're going to be talking about kind of a year-end music review and we'll definitely have a top list revolving around that uh i'm, I'm excited mark uh, I, I know red city radio always gets you going man and, and i can't wait to talk about it yeah i'm, I'm trying really hard not to s their d on this one because uh look spoiler alert i like it um <laughs> this will be uh as frank said we'll be wrapping up um whatever seasons however this were year one year one I appreciate you guys letting me take a little COVID vacation there in the middle. There you uh, go. Recently, um, and and staying with us, we really appreciate that. Um, but this this will be kind of it. We'll be back uh, in early January. Um, we'll tell you what the first record is when you listen to the Red City Radio album nice. uh, review because uh, it's going to be a good time. We're going to have a lot of fun. You know that me and Frank love lists. Twenty twenty has been a year, um, but given uh, that it is a year that's taken like four years to do. There's actually been a bunch of really good records that came out this year. There's been a lot of great music to listen to, to talk about. Um, we'll, we'll do, um, you know, Frank's going to go through the archives of what we did and uh, try to do his best impression of me and quote me in those. I just told him about <laughs> that right now as you're listening to it. Um, so uh, be sure to check that out. And um, yeah. thanks for listening. Yeah, everyone, stay safe out there, of course. Follow us on all the places where you can find us, like, and subscribe. And yeah. um, stay safe out there, folks. Yeah, and uh, bye-bye.